Welcome to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM WMCN, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. We've got a great bike hour ahead of us. We're going to be talking about coaching endurance athletes with Sophie St. Jacques and Larry Foss from the Fix Studio and Cafe here in Minneapolis. But before we get into that conversation, we're going to talk, as we always do, about the world of track cycling. Uh, Good week last week for the uh, U.S. team at the World Championships. They took five medals, set two records, one world record, and one U.S. record, and they got a bunch of top tens. Chloe Digert took the uh, women's inter- individual pursuit uh, world championship and set a world record in that uh, discipline. The women's team pursuit team took f- their fourth rainbow jersey and set an American record. And I think, and what was uh, special to everybody is they dedicated their win to Kelly Catlin, uh, who had passed away last year about this time. So a uh, meaningful moment for them <clears throat> on the track. Uh, Jennifer Valente, who's raced here at the National Sports Center, uh, got, took the silver in the points and scratch races. And Ashton Lambie took silver in the individual pursuit on the men's side. So big doings over in Berlin for the U.S. team. A uh, bunch of big changes actually coming up in track cycling. The UCI announced that there are going to be no more World Cups on the track, and they're trying out a totally new format for next year. Uh, actually, 2021, I think, is when they're going to start that. But uh, lots of interesting things afoot there, and so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. And then, of course, uh, the Minnesota Cycling Center had a uh, hearing in front of the legislative committee that's uh, responsible for their bill um, a couple weeks ago, and uh, so we're hopeful that that's going to move on. You can learn more about that and contact your legislators at mncyclingcenter.org. Sophie and Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely, it's great to great to get a chance to talk to you guys. Uh, I want to I want to find out a little bit more about how each of you got involved in your uh, your cycling pursuits. Well, I uh, I started in 1988. I bought a mountain bike because I thought it would be really good to use for hunting. Huh. Interesting. And uh, I. I bought a bike on Wednesday and uh, I did my first race on Sunday and that I've been doing it ever since. Wow, that's fantastic. How old were you at the time? Oh gosh, tw- in my earlier 20s. Okay. Le- yeah, late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. And then I raced, I did not touch a road bike for probably five years. Is that right? Only, Only mountain bike. Interesting. Five years. So guy from Nebraska, how do you find mountains? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's no no mountains. No mountains. Uh, I, by that time, I was by the time I started, I was already up in Minneapolis. Oh, okay. So I was already here. Right. So uh, yeah, started with the Minnesota Mountain Bike Series, mm-hmm. did the War Series for quite a few years. Um, I ended up racing up uh, racing for myself uh, up until about '97, and then '98 uh, I got a job. Uh, got a job on the national team and basically was on the road from 98 until the end of 2008. Wow. Well, I want to get into that a little bit more in in depth, but Sophie, talk a little bit about how you got involved in cycling. I don't know if it's as exciting, uh, but I think from being from Montreal, uh, Quebec, we had a big influence, I think the European influence. Mm -hmm. News in the newspaper, you know, during the Tour de France, every day there was one or two page of reports. Wow. I just thought that was the coolest sport. And I was at that point 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. So started racing in eight, 1988, 89. And you raced for a number of years as an, at the elite uh, international level. Talk a little bit about what that experience was like. Well, it was definitely, I think, a, a little bit uh, a life experience, really. I'm you know, sure. You develop you know, a lot of skills and life skills. 
and also that just end up leading me towards the profession I'm doing, mm-hmm. the coaching, but also uh, athletic therapy and rehab and mm-hmm. conditioning because something I was aware of and often using. Myself. Sure. What was it? What were some of the highlights? I mean, what were some of the most memorable moments for you of that international career? Hmm. I, I can't say if there's a race particular, but I think overall it's, you know, the, the people you meet and then the, the experience. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think with cycling, which is really neat, is compared to, let's say, swimming, per se, you in a, a facility and you'll really get to see the outside and mm-hmm. the world, you get to see, you know, places that you wouldn't go if you were traveling in a sport that is mainly in it, I think seeing a lot of different aspects of the world is really neat. I, uh, I, I had, you know, I've, I've heard a number of people who have raced at that level talk about, you know, the fact that cycling is an individual sport to a certain degree, but yet that team work and the team camaraderie, more importantly, is really a valuable part of that experience. What were the teams that you were involved with like? Well, definitely uh, some uh, Canadian team as a, when we were Younger, which seems not a long time ago, we started a small team out of Montreal, and then that became a bigger team, and we raced, you know, all around the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, did some races, obviously, uh, here in North America, but we even traveled around across the pond. And then um, I think, some, yeah, I think that would be probably my the team I feel that team we had the greatest bond, and and that was definitely quite. A memorable experience, and then some of those writers are still friends mm-hmm. years and years later. So that's that's really a special a special thing. Mm-hmm. What uh, at what point did you decide? You know, in your as you were growing up, when did you decide that you had a shot and wanted to pursue international, like the next level of cycling? I don't even know if I thought of it. You know, really, it was just like this was the the way it went, and. And I, I guess when I was a kid, what got me into cycling was the Tour de France. So to me, mm-hmm. it was just, well, I guess this is what I want to do. I want to do stage races in Europe. And, yeah. And, and that's what really I was aiming for. Mm-hmm. So. Larry, you talked a little bit about that first job that you had in, in pro cycling. How did that come to pass? Uh, actually, it's, it's really interesting because uh, I got... I went to massage school and I was just graduated from massage school and I got a job or I got a call from Bob Williams hmm. and the national team was going to be up in Blaine mm-hmm. in at the sports center velodrome sports center. Yeah. Yep. They were, and they were staying in the dorms at, at the sports center and he called me up and he's like, when are you done with massage school? And I'm like, all right, get done on Friday. You doing anything next week? <laughs> and, uh, by Monday I was working with the national team and wow. Yeah, it just—it's funny how you just get that one one opportunity mm-hmm. and what that one opportunity can can lead to. And yeah, I mean, a lot of the guys that I worked with on that first project, I, I I'm still friends with those guys. I still talk to them. They most of them have been long retired, hmm. and I still talk to them. Uh, gosh, pro- I probably talked to somebody on that on that team probably once every couple of months. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Yeah, and so then obviously you parlayed that into you know other work with other teams and yeah, I I used that that one uh, that one training camp and then uh, shortly after that I got a phone call and I ended up working I became the the massage therapist for uh, the endurance track program. Hmm. So I worked with track 
pretty much my whole career with the national team. And then, uh, yeah, I, it, it, I just got lucky. I got lucky and uh, got an opportunity and, you know, I loved all the guys. I loved the, the, the biggest thing for, for that kind of job is, is how well do you travel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, being a kid from rural Minnesota, rural, rural Nebraska, I had no idea how well I traveled. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprisingly a good traveler. I got to believe that that can be super grueling. <clears throat> it, it, I'll tell you, it was the coolest experience of my life until it wasn't. <laughs> and then when it wasn't, it went from, you know, it went from being great in after so many years of being on the road and, you know, burning the candle at both ends. Mm-hmm. I was, towards the end, I couldn't go on a trip without getting sick. Really? And I got, I got really sick at, a, at an event leading into the Beijing Olympics. Hmm. I got sick in China, and I, I have no recollection of flying home. Wow. None. Oh, that, that's pretty much when I was like, yeah, I think nah, I'm, I'm done. I think I'm done with this. And it was right at, I think it was right at the time the bird flu was going around. Hmm. So, you know, all my friends, nobody wanted to come around. I got home <laughs> after a month on the road with no food in the house and sick yeah. as a dog. And oh, man. None of my friends wanted to even come over. No way and and Uber Eats didn't really exist yet by then, did it? <laughs> I was living downtown at the time, so it wasn't wasn't so bad. I was able to figure it out. Man, yeah, wow. And it, it, like I said, it it was great. And I was, I you know, there's not very many days that go by that I don't that, that I'm not really thankful with. I mean, Sophie and I have a job that like five people in the entire country have. So yeah, we're really fortunate we get to do what we do for a living. It's uh, it's interesting. Um, to you know, sort of feel like taking your passion and taking it into a job. I mean, and I got to believe to a certain degree that experience you had with the national team had a huge impact on your coaching and what oh, you do with your business. I mean, yeah, my I mean, my my mentor was a coach on the national team that uh, he just passed away a couple of years ago, but he's he was probably he absolutely was the biggest coaching influence that you know. I every day I do something, I'm like, oh yeah. I, 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 <laughs> That's that's Des. Yeah, that's Des. It's uh, it's pretty special to have those kinds of people carry you along the way, and I'm sure a lot of your athletes feel the same way about the things that you're sharing with them. Yeah, I mean, again, it it just comes down to you know, I I feel really lucky to have. I've had a pretty good run. Yeah. Sophie, you know, as a, as a member of a team and, you know, being inside the fences, so to speak, how does that affect what you do with your athletes and how you approach coaching with them? Well, I think with anybody, you've got to always think, what are their intentions? What are they looking for? Mm-hmm. And what's the goal? And I think that's how I, I will always approach because there's a perfect way and then there's life. <laughs> and then let's try to figure out what works and how yeah. can we get, you know, with everything that is going around, how can we get the best out of you? And, and you know, that's definitely, I think Mike, when I was younger in training, my coach always had that approach. It's even though I raised you know, on the national team, we're traveling. Mm-hmm. Always made sure that school is priority. So there are priorities, and you can still do your training and your, your racing as well. Yeah. So you base your coaching out of the Fix Studio, your your yeah. uh, your shop in in South Minneapolis. How did how did that get started? Talk a little bit about the shop and where where it came from. Well, I mean, it, the the Fix Studio started in a one bedroom apartment in Uptown, 
Wow. And I was just doing massage and uh, some coaching. And 2005, Gene and Jennifer Oberpiller, who've been great friends of mine for 30 years, uh, were they had just opened one on one, and uh, they ca- they called me up and we went out and went and hung out and they're like, you should you should move the fixed studio onto the second floor. Hmm. And from 2005 till 2010, the fixed studio was on uh, just above, upstairs. Yeah, up wow, the second floor of one on one. And then uh, they built a stadium, and it became pretty obvious that we weren't going to be able to grow in that space. So mm-hmm. that's when Sophie and I bought a we bought a built bought a building in South Minneapolis, and we've been there for yeah ten years now. And then it, what's what's really interesting is now a year ago, uh, Gene and Jennifer sold their building downtown, and they moved right down. The, they bought a building <laughs> right down the street. Yeah, I was going to say they're like three blocks away from yeah, you, right? So our neighbors again. Which is, <laughs> Which is super awesome. That's really fun. Yeah, those guys are great. What was the initial vision that you had for the business? I mean, not what it is. Really? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I, I think we. I mean, we wanted. We definitely wanted to have our do our cycling classes, but mm-hmm. we. Gosh, I, I think we we figured that we'd be doing cycling classes from November until end of March. Yep. And then the rest of the year would just be our. You know the co- coaching, mm-hmm. and maybe do a little bit more traveling with, with some teams for big events. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we the first two years, I think we only had three cycling classes a, a week, hmm. and now I mean it's up to like twenty five. No kidding. Yeah, and that was not that. That was just not part. It was going to be part of the business. It wasn't going to be the majority of the business. And, yeah, you know, things just work out the way they work out. Yeah. And, uh, well, I've got, I've got to believe is driven by your clients. I mean, you're the, the members of the club and, you know, the people that you work with yeah. obviously embrace that that mentality and those services. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, what do you think? We have 20, probably 20 people that have been with us since... 10 years? Yeah, since... Wow, since, since the very beginning. beginning. We, we, have, we have at least 20 people that were coming to classes in the North Loop mm-hmm. that are still with us. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's crazy. We've got, I mean, we got like four graduation parties to go to this summer because <laughs> like we, when we met our customers, they had these little kids that weren't even in school yet. Yeah. Their, their kids are already graduated from high school. Wow. It's pretty nutty. That's, that's exciting. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, what are, talk a little bit about all the services that you offer at the studio. Oh, well, we... Indoor, indoor cycling and running classes. Um, we have a full service bike shop. Uh, uh, we still do a lot of strength and conditioning stuff, a lot of kettlebell work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sophie does a lot of rehab, uh, rehabilitation work mm-hmm. from, from injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, sports massage. Um, oh, uh, compression therapy, bike fitting physiological testing hmm. pretty much if it comes under the endurance sports banner we you offer support yeah, for it yeah you offer some kind of service from that because you know 35 years in an industry you tend to learn a, <laughs> a thing or two yeah you, you get, <laughs> it gets harder to advertise because it's because uh, <coughs> we do so many things mm-hmm <coughs> And then uh, two years ago, we opened up a cafe, too. I was going to ask you about that. Tell, talk a little bit about how that's evolved the business. 
Well, the vision as the actually the neighborhood changed a lot mm -hmm. since we moved in, uh, and then it started becoming more more active neighborhood, younger neighborhood. And since they redid the street, more people walking, biking down the street, which we never saw in the past. That's great. So we're like, how can we connect with this community that is, you know, evolving and booming? And that was really a way to kind of make this approach, you know, for people to come in and know what we do a lot. Um, easier and then create even you know within our clientele a better community mm -hmm. where we can meet and go for a bike ride or hang out after a workout so and not just an in and out so it was kind of also the vision from the get-go not the cafe but to create that community gathering space and that just helped a lot to to do that and so that, that was the vision behind the cafe I mean, uh, obviously, cyclists are big into coffee, so having having that available for your your their clients, I'm sure, is is valuable. Have you found that you've got people who started as cafe clients who have now become um, members of your class, your training classes, and stuff? Yeah, yeah, it's been. I mean, we kind of looked at it as a marketing. I mean, it was really part marketing tool to mm -hmm. to put the cafe in, and you know, it's uh, from a business side, you can do it at a pretty reasonable price and it, it, it can make sense and quite honestly I you know for me it's kind of a vanity thing as long as I can get somebody to make me some coffee I mean that's gold that was worth it right there it's the free coffee maker in the yeah. office right yeah exactly so what's uh, what's your long-term vision for the business I mean where do you see the thing going 5 10 20 years down the road well, twenty years down the road, I I, I won't be uh, I won't be there. You're gonna be retired. <laughs> I, I won't be. Yeah, I'm gonna retire before I'm eighty, so I think I'll I'll be gone by then. But um, I, you know, really, just to to keep growing growing that growing the community, it, mm -hmm. it's you know we've been really fortunate that we get to do this, and the, the it's all about the you know the more relationships you can build and mm -hmm. have that bigger community. I I. I Gosh, I don't even know when I would even think about retiring. I, maybe never, I don't know. Because I haven't had to work yet. So <laughs> that's a really pretty, fun way to think about pretty it. Pretty gifted. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Um, as you think about you know the, the core customers, and it's getting a little bit into the coaching, what are the kinds of people that, that are coming in the doors at The Fix? Well, I kind of like to call them our everyday athlete. Yeah. You know, let's be honest, most people have a job in their life and then maybe a family. Mm -hmm. Even though it doesn't mean that you can't pursue competing, having goals, sure. even with all of that. So so the majority of people, I would say, are I like to call them everyday athletes. Mm -hmm. They're de dedicated and have goals, and, and it could be just you know an event, but it could also just fitness and performance. Mm -hmm. They wanted to see how... how you know, where can they push that, that machine that they have, which is their body? Yeah. And, and also trying to stay healthy, injury-free throughout, you know, this whole process mm -hmm. and this journey. And, and I think this is probably what the, the majority of our clientele. Of course, we, you know, we'll have some younger athletes, some juniors, or Larry works with some Paralympics mm -hmm. athlete on the national team. So there's that, too. But those are kind of the end of the bell curve, the majority is, right. you know, yeah, Every day, I, I think when you think about any of the with the running or any of the sports that we coach, gosh, less than five percent of them are uh, are elite level mm -hmm. 
yeah, less than five percent are, are elite level athletes. Mm -hmm. That vast majority of them are, <clears throat> you know, they want to do uh, Alonzo or sure. Leadville. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then you're trying to shoehorn enough training in with uh, with the demands that they have with you know life. Yeah. And, and what are some of the things, as you think about working with a new client, what are some of the keys to a successful connection with a, with a client? Interview. <laughs> the, first, <laughs> the first time you sit down mm -hmm. and really trying to figure out what's their, where are they coming from? Mm -hmm. What are the intention with all of this? So that we can you know, try to meet those goals and... And, and not just goal for a race. Let's create also something that's a lifelong you know, um, activity, mm -hmm. either running or skiing or or cycling. So, but yeah, I think it is really that communication and trying to find what drives them and what excites them. Mm -hmm. What are, what are some of the things you think about as you go into that first training plan with someone? How do you how do you craft that training plan for people? Um, you know, it depends on the depends on the athlete. Mm -hmm. um, if if it was just a completely new person, um, you know, you, you you've got to first work on uh, getting them to do it consistently. Mm -hmm. So if they're working out three days a week, they're probably I'm probably not going to raise it more than that. I'll continue on that three three day week and mm -hmm. for you know, maybe a month and then start adding. A little bit more consistency, then you add duration, and then last you start adding and the adding the intensity, and then it's it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty much the same. Humans are as unpredictable as we are. We're very predictable. <laughs> if you if you stress the system and give it time to rest, it's going to adapt to the stimulus. Mm -hmm. it, it really comes down to that. Um, depending on what they want to do, you, I mean. You, we got a million ways to dig into the data and, and see what the actual demands of the activity that they're going after. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of train, train to those demands. The, the framework is really easy. The problem or the, the complicating factor is life. Right. You know, uh, even if it's juniors mm -hmm. or, or even the elite people I work with, it's, they all have other responsibilities. Yeah. They're trying to shoehorn everything in there, and people get injured, people get sick. Sure. So it's. Uh, well, and you got to go to work for eight hours a day, right? How do you fit a yeah. five hour training right in? Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I, I guess I don't. I mean, we're, we're there for motivation, but the, the biggest thing is that, you, I mean, with, with all the stuff that's going on now, I mean, you can get a training you can spend five minutes on the internet and get mm -hmm. a training program sure but where our value comes in is when when it starts going sideways yep we can straighten the car without <laughs> <laughs> it going in the ditch yeah and, and and I you know from personal experience I can tell you how inviting the couch is yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a lot more comfortable in a bike saddle <laughs> yeah exactly exactly what are some of the questions that people come to you with? I mean, when you start to have those initial conversations, what are some of the things that people really ask about? Um, on the on the coaching side, it's <clears throat> on our end. I, I would say the most common question is, you know, is this feasible? Mm -hmm. I, do I have to quit my job to do this? <laughs> well, you have to you have to adjust the goals to what what's what's reasonable. I mean, I, I've had people come in and say, I want to be 
world champion or I want to get a medal at the Olympics next cycle. And you're like, yeah, all right. And then you have to be the bad guy and sure. explain that uh, that might be possible, but the amount of work that it would take. Mm-hmm. You know, it's as a coach, it's it's your responsibility to be the voice of reason. And, yeah. And uh, try not to let people do things that are ridiculous. <laughs> Well, and I got to believe too. I mean, from a from a rehab and from a, a medical standpoint too, Sophie, you've got challenges that people have to overcome, right? I mean, what kinds of things do you hear from from your clients on on that front? Can I still run? Mm. Can I still bike? Yeah. Even though you're you're dealing with some injuries or movement pattern dysfunction, you know, everybody want to keep their activity level because sure, it's a social. More than often, it's a stress relief. It's an a social thing. Mm-hmm. So. Can they keep doing that mm-hmm. even though while they're in or we're trying to address something? Then it's the question is like, well, do we park the car at the car <laughs> dealer and just take a little bit of time to fix it? Or do we try to keep doing it as we're driving? Mm-hmm. So it all depends. But that I think that's the main question is like, well, can I keep doing it? Yeah. So, but overall, people all want the same thing. They want to move. They want to be pain-free, mm-hmm. feel fit. Uh, and be with their their tribes, their group, who yeah. they train and ride or whatever sports they're doing. You know, it's everybody has a little bit of the same ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And it seems like having the complimentary services that you have at the at the studio really can help with that, right? I mean, because you can not only give them a training plan, but you can also make sure that with the bike fit, they're you know the, they're comfortable on the bike. They've got the you know necessary musculature movement that they can you know actually function it right. Yeah, I mean, and that's <clears throat> that's been one of the, the cool things about doing it for so many years is we, we've been able to kind of dovetail together all mm-hmm. the things that, that make an athlete successful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we can do it all pretty much in-house, so that's, that, that's pretty nice. So we can kind of be that one stop for a lot of different parts to that puzzle. Mm-hmm. You... Uh you know, you have this vision in your head. A lot of people do of cycling coaches driving in the car beside somebody riding five hours at a time, just yelling at them. What are some of the misconceptions that you hear from people when you when you talk about coaching I've, them? I've done a lot of that, but uh, <laughs> but uh, there, there's all. I mean, the amount of computer time I, I the amount of computer time and phone time is just it, it, there's a lot of it, hmm. and it's. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, as an American, we, we kind of have this this notion of what a, our idea of a coach is usually like a ball sports coach, that's hmm. very screamy and throwing a temper tantrum. <laughs> There's no crying and cycling and, and yelling, and <laughs> that's not really uh, doesn't that's not not very often that that happens in in the endurance world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's you know, they, for me, I. My my happy days are are when I can be the guy driving the car for five hours. <laughs> I, I, that's probably one of the more enjoyable parts of of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's. Yeah, just as we we're talking, just had, I was thinking and had a thought: is coaching has changed a lot, even fifteen years ago. Yeah, we could not do it the same way we're doing it. All you know, using computers and data that much. Mm-hmm. I just think that you know even our vision of 15 years ago has totally changed just because 
computers have right. come up. And the data is available. And the way we can communicate and stay in contact. Mm -hmm. I remember receiving my, my, my training back then via fax. Wow. I mean, that, <laughs> and then, well, I calling it talking on the phone, but now, you know, it's so much more responsive. Mm -hmm. Response are quick and... So it has changed a lot of what is the vision of coaching. Mm -hmm. you I'm sure. You need to be with the athlete. You can uh, foster a lot of that throughout just other ways, mm -hmm. computers and data analysis. And, but it is still, I think, important to have a connection with a coach mm -hmm. because there's a lot that you see and understand of an athlete. Yeah. And you see them you know, once in a while, not just via an email. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what is really the... What we truly enjoy, Larry and I, is that connection and that uh, relationship with the athlete. Mm -hmm. Really seeing them evolve and improve, and versus if it was just via paper or email. Yeah, you. Uh, I mean, obviously, everybody's different. Everybody has different goals, different ideas, different capabilities. But you talked a little bit, Larry, earlier about the structure of a training plan. What are some of the key elements? for a training plan that you put together for an athlete? Well, I, I think the biggest thing is that you've got to have a progressive load. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be getting more difficult. Mm -hmm. um, what I mean, what I do is I look at what their key event is, start backing it up to where we're at. Sure. And start going from there so we can build in. You know, if it's a, if it's a pretty elite level rider, we, and depending on we may go a four-week block. Mm -hmm. but, most normal people is a three-week block, and then when I get into some of the the older athletes I work with, they're usually two weeks on, one week off. Mm -hmm. But if you there there number one there there is no magic training. Yeah, um, I wish there was, <laughs> and then I'd have you know then I'd have a really big goal to figure mm -hmm. that out, but it doesn't exist. Um, so everybody's a little bit different, but if you just follow the principles of if progression. If you if you start with the consistency of the workouts, start added, adding duration, and then once you get the duration to where what you can fit in, then you start doing the intensity. And mm -hmm. I don't want to make it sound that simple, but it is that simple. Sure, it's really not as complicated. And then when you get to the intensity portion, you just look at you know now we have the ability to look at a power duration curve, which is basically a model of all the best power numbers that you've put up through uh, through a, a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And when you look at that, you can see where there's some deficiencies that need to be addressed, and you can go from there. It, it, yeah, for, for a normal person, that would kind of be the way I'd look at it. When, I'm, when I start looking at like the more elite stage racer guys, then we start doing things start getting a little bit more complicated because you're a lot more worried about fatigue resistance. So sure. What's their maximum power at three hours versus mm -hmm. one hour? Right. Because if it's a five-hour race, you can be the strongest person in the field for an hour. Nobody cares. <laughs> That's right. You can you cross the finish line four hours later? Exactly. So yeah. You, so you, you'll do... Uh, Oh gosh, I have some athletes that'll do like twelve hundred kilojoules of work hmm. and do the intervals. Wow! So they're out there for you know they're out there for a, a long time. time. At that point, that's kind of their job. Mm -hmm. So it, it, I feel a little bit a little bit easier about that. Yeah, and I know you guys, as part of a training plan in general, working with your with your uh, members, the people who come to the the classes, you do a lot of threshold testing, right? Yeah. 
And is that kind of your big check-in point with people to say, okay, where have we hit? What are we doing the right things? Um, when it comes to cl to class, the, the threshold number is probably, or it definitely is the most important number for it. But it's been, with the athletes I coach, I, we've do, we always do a one-minute test, a five-minute test, and a 20-minute test. Mm -hmm. Uh, just so we can get it, get the right data across all those energy systems. Mm -hmm. But for most normal people, aren't going to want to do. I probably wouldn't even have them do it because there, there's got to be value in it. Right. You know, if uh, you know if somebody wants to do the MS150, I don't think we really need to do a lot of sprint. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a lot of those town signs are pretty, pretty enticing. <laughs> You got to keep adversity, you know, diverse, right? I mean, yeah. you got to well, keep people from getting all, bored. You're going to hit all those energy systems in any, any given block. Sure. But how much? How much time you're? Are you going to spend enough time there just to keep it activated, or are you going to spend enough time in it to start raising it up? Right, make it a strength. Yeah. Yeah. So it really varies on on, on what that what their demands of mm -hmm. that sport are. Obviously, you want to individualize a program as much as you can for somebody. How do you make a training class with seven or eight or 12 other people individualized for an individual athlete? And we're, we've been doing it a long time now, but I'll tell you, in the beginning, it, it felt like uh, you know, threading the needle with 20 needles because you're, <laughs> you you're trying to get the right stressors for everyone. Sure. Um, and, you know... I, I would be lying if I said we never got it wrong. <laughs> it happens. But, yeah. Uh, after this much time, we're it, it's what we try to do is kind of focus on one kind of energy system, mm -hmm. one certain thing for a week, and sure. But constantly changing it. it you know, it, what's really interesting to me is because when when we first started doing classes, oh my god, I was going to write a twelve week training program. And then I was going to put that in the can, and I was going to take it out every single year. And uh, we didn't. I did. We did a twelve-week program, and I think we made it one week. Wow! Before we started changing it, because it's, you know, you get a group of, you get a group of, of people, and not everybody is recovering at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you might have a group like one class might be doing something slightly different based on, on what that what that group is. Mm -hmm. So. The, there's a lot of adjusting on the fly, especially with within the individual person in class. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Some days you're a hammer. Some days you're a nail. <laughs> I'm I'm all for suffering if there's a purpose. Yeah. If it's just for the sake of suffering, then we're not going to. We don't participate. Yeah. In that. Bike riding should be fun, right? I completely <laughs> agree. So you you got to you got to dole out the hurt in a. In a pretty controlled fashion. Yeah. If all it was was to make people come in and cry for 60 minutes, we can, <laughs> that, that workout's easy. Yeah. Right? That workout is really easy. The, the other ones are, are a little bit more uh, complicated. And, but that, that's part of the fun of it, too. Sure. I mean, like, we, we had that plan of that 12-week program that we were going to just kind of rehash every year. And now we've got a stack of workouts that's probably six inches tall. Mm -hmm. Because we never, we never do the same. Like, you, we're not going to do the same week, the same workout week three mm -hmm. 
workout too is it, from year to year it's going to be completely different yeah and i got to believe to keep people coming back you need to have that variety to make it interesting right they don't want to have the same class every time they show up correct and i mean for me it, it's a big reason is for me because i get <laughs> and i don't want to just hit rinse repeat yeah that wouldn't, that wouldn't, that wouldn't work for me and I'm sure with with data and power meters, you can you can individualize a program for somebody, even though they're sitting in the same class doing the same uh, kinds of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's we do use the five, the we use the 20 minute test and the five minute test. And the big reason for that is if somebody's completely outside of the curve on one end of that, mm-hmm. we can address it during class. Sure. And, and make it. Uh, make it more appropriate for what they need for stimulation. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. In case you're just joining us, you're listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM, WMCN, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're in studio with Sophie St. Jacques and Larry Foss, the owners of the Fix Studio and Cafe in Minneapolis, and talking about coaching and training for endurance athletes. Um, you know, one of the things, Sophie, that I you sort of hear as a as a – stereotype of cyclists i guess is a good way to put it is we just ride and that's how we stay fit but there's not a lot of cross training that goes on i mean from an injury perspective from a performance perspective how important is that cross training for you in terms of other athletes that you coach again it all depends obviously who you're dealing with um you know some people have had even let's call it movement literacy a lot of people have had you know growing up a lot of movement literacy by doing a lot of different sport, different movements, so they may have built, built, you know, a pretty good foundation, mm-hmm. and there's some people that may have not, you know, they're just, now they're in their adult life, and they're starting to get into activity, mm-hmm. that. and then, so then at that point, I may have to start back to a perspective of movement literacy, maybe I have to start back with the foundation, so it really depends how trained, or what's the past and history of a mm-hmm. person, but it is definitely really important to keep and, and just for human species right. <laughs> standpoint, forgetting the performance and mm-hmm. you know, we should, you know, make sure that we address a lot of not just endurance, sure. strength, foundation work, movement pattern. Flexibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I ain't gonna get better <laughs> with <laughs> no. age and not touching it. So. Well, that's that's right, and I, I know you know from personal experience that the more I ride, the less flexible I get. You know, and so to me, doing things like yoga is is really important to you know being able to tie my shoes. <laughs> exactly, and, I, and that's just a movement, uh, human species thing. You know, right, you want to still be able to to get off the floor when you're you know, later on in life. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, or even at this point, if you're just still. You're a young adult, mm-hmm. able to swing the leg over the saddle. Yeah. Know? So. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about you know sort of the basic level movement stuff, and, and you can take a take someone a long way in per, terms of performance, but if there's you know something structurally that's not working right, it makes it challenging. I like the analogy of you know you can put uh, you can keep training you know the, the your, your endurance and all that. Yeah. And it's like putting a Formula One car uh, Formula One car uh, motor. And if you put it in your Honda, whatever, mm-hmm. well, now you, you, the chassis of the car is not ready for this. So right. If you've not done that foundation, that strength work, that stability work, it won't work. So mm-hmm. you can train the motor as much as you can, but you also <laughs> got to think of the rest. Absolutely. What uh, you talked a little earlier, Larry, about some of the challenges that that in athletes face. You know, what are some of the things that you see most frequently that are, that challenge people? 
Um, I mean, if it, I think at the the higher the level, I think the I, I send out a lot of sports psychology. Yeah. Um, when you get when you start getting at the higher higher levels of the sport, the the fitness is really minuscule. Yeah. Difference. That's the cost of doing business, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody is so close. You'll occasionally get someone that's just a complete anomaly mm -hmm. that is physiologically better than than most everyone else. But by and large, man, everybody is so stinking close, and it really comes down to your ability to put all that anxiety aside and mm -hmm. perform on the day. Yeah. It's uh, one of my favorite movie lines in history is from Bull Durham when uh, Crash goes up to the mountain. He says, don't thank me. It can only hurt the team. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. In, in humans, we, you know, we can start getting spooled up on something that is completely inconsequential and that can ha start having a negative impact. Mm -hmm. So I, a, a lot of t I'll tell you, the bi my busiest times are be like the week before any really big competition the amount of time I spend on the phone talking people off the ledge mm -hmm. uh, because you start questioning you start everything. Questioning everything. Yeah. I, I've yet to, I've yet maybe one athlete in all my years that felt going into world championships that they were well prepared. It, it is a rarity. Almost everybody is sure that everything that they did was wrong. And, hmm. You know, we should have done this different. We should have done that different. And uh, it, 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 you got to calm that down. Definitely. It's kind of that human nature of, of being a failure. Sure, absolutely. So it gets a lot, a lot more heightened when when the pressure comes on. Yeah, one of the one of the best sports psychology books I've ever read is The Inner Game of Tennis. I, I yeah, I it, It's not. It's not even sport. It's not sport specific. Right. It's species. Yeah, specific. that's exactly right. Just get your brain out of your own way. <laughs> yeah, the amount of coaching stuff that I read that doesn't come from our, from the sports that I work with is crazy. Yeah. Because we're humans. We're we're not that different. Mm -hmm. You uh, you've worked with a lot of people at those elite levels, and and I'm sort of curious to know, especially you've worked with some people who are up and coming, like Nick Carter, mm -hmm. uh, who's been on the show, and uh, Clara Brown, who just uh, won uh, won a silver at the World Paracycling Championships recently. Talk a little bit about how those relationships have evolved. She, she won a rainbow jersey. Really, she won two of them. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She did. She did well. She did very well. She did well. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, it was. It, that's yeah. It, it, you know, anytime you're winning a world championship jersey, that's yeah, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Um, yeah, I mean, I I love I love working with that level. That level of athlete is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. A lot of stress. I bet it is. But it's that's the that's the fun part. Yeah. Um, you you know, it's high risk, high reward. With, sure. With everything and. and uh, so how does your approach change with an athlete like that as opposed to the everyday cyclist that Sophie talked about earlier? Again, it, it, it really varies on the athlete. Sure. I, I have one particular elite-level athlete that I've been coaching for five years that I don't write any of his training anymore. Interesting. None. Really? Nope. Um, I, we talk like twice a week, and hmm. he writes all of his training, and then we talk about what's in it. We may modify it. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I, I let him write it because that's what gives him comfort and hmm. makes him feel feel like he has more control. Sure. And uh, it, 
that's completely fine with me because they know them better than I'm ever going to know them. So at that point, you're really just checking in, making sure you're asking good questions, and yeah, it's uh, it's really become at with some of those guys, it turns into kind of just a, you're just in a management role, and mm-hmm. it's not. Uh, I mean, because the training itself, like a, like we've already talked about, it, I mean, you can get that on the internet, in right? Five, you know, five minutes, mm-hmm. and that particular athlete really likes to have the control of of putting it, writing it down, and putting it in the calendar. And <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not offended by that. That's, that's completely fine with me. And yeah, but we have that. And then I, you can have the other end of that spectrum too, where like they can't, like if there's a, a you write a workout and somehow there's 30 seconds that's not accounted for, mm-hmm. there's people that are just freaking out. <laughs> Right, exactly. Do a one-legged drill. <laughs> so, yeah, it, 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 it's there's not there is not a box that that fits on any of it. The amount every single athlete I work with, the interactions are completely different. It's it just it it's far more varied than what I mm-hmm. when I thought it was going to be when you know I started coaching in 1994 where you'd get $20 for a training program and you'd wait for the check to come and then the check came and then you'd you know go on the computer and print out a, a spreadsheet wow. put it in an envelope put and a mail stamp it to him. on it and wow it. and you'd hear no interaction you'd have basically zero interactions during the course of the month really. You know you're doing okay if uh, if the check showed up. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, you know, I got to believe that you've seen a lot of changes in development over the years. You know what what's happening in terms of rider development across the country and around the world. What what are some of the trends that you're seeing right now, and particularly in U.S. road cycling for developing new riders? I, I think. I mean, there's. I mean, pro road cycling in the U.S. is is not very healthy right now. Yeah. Obviously, um, so I think that the developmental challenges for those juniors, we just don't have enough programs going in the in the states for it to be really robust. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing the kids coming out of it are are like some of the best cyclists that we junior talent that we've ever had, hmm. which is really crazy because there's just not that much. There's not that much going on with right them. at any level, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I we are really lucky here because we have uh, MNJR, mm-hmm. the DAG runs. He's man, he's always done a really good job. Mm-hmm. North Star Club. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Sherry, uh, Sherry and Charlie. My God, they the amount of work that they do is crazy. They both of those groups have have uh, have done a lot for. A lot for the sport. Mm-hmm. Let's. We would have had Kelly. Right. That's exactly I mean, right. She came through. She came through that. That program. North Star. You bet. Um, obviously, Nick. Mm-hmm. Nick started. Nick started with us when he was eleven. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, tiny little kid. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good because I mean, they live. Nick lives like a block and a half from the studio. No kidding. Yeah. So. <laughs> the, We've had him. He's worked at the studio on and off since probably his 14 years old, coming and doing odd jobs. That's great. And what it was so funny the year he won nationals for the first time in Hartford. Yep. In cyclocross, 
and he got back from the trip and he walked in the door at the studio and I handed him a broom. <laughs> to work. That's great. But we spent like three hours uh, decorating the broom with all stars and stripes. <laughs> That's really fun. That's really fun. We had a fun. national championship broom that season. That nice. <laughs> Not everybody can claim that. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty exciting. So uh, how has your relationship with your own bike changed since you've been doing this together? I mean, what, uh, what does cycling mean to you now outside the studio, Sophie? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, having been into cycling since I'm 11, and now to age myself, I'm 43, so it's been obviously in my life for as long as I can remember, so mm-hmm. it's always going to be there, I believe. It's just the, the level of it and the hours maybe I'm putting in is different. Mm-hmm. And, and at this point, it's more just a, a fitness and enjoying and being with my, my peeps, my community, having fun, you know, doing rides or events. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just change, but I think it's always going to be part of, of my life, and I hope yeah. so. I really hope so that I'm 70 and I'm still riding with my buddies. Yeah. Uh, do you still compete? I mean, do you still get into races? I I think the gravel has kind of brought that, not the competing, but just, okay, let's go do an event with a bunch of people have mm-hmm. on us, and let's try to you know, push yourself, but uh, not to the role racing. Yeah. Compete. Right. Competing like I did, not to that one. Talking about gravel, you guys went down to Florida for a for a fun race this this winter. Talk a little bit about what that was like. Uh, we conned a whole bunch of our customers into signing up for a two hundred mile gravel race in Florida on <laughs> January twenty fifth. I didn't realize they actually had gravel roads in Florida. Oh, good lord! Florida Florida's got incredible incredible gravel. Roads. Really? Yeah, the road I, riding there is. Terrifying. I was going to say. <laughs> but the gravel riding is absolutely fantastic, especially when you get a little bit further south down down near the Everglades because there's canals that connect all the Everglades together. Oh, sure. And every one of them on both sides of them is dike road. Interesting. So you can ride, oh, my God, you, you, you could ride for a year. Wow. Not even come close to touching all the gravel that they have down there. That's cool. It sounds like it's about my speed, too, because there's not much uphill. No, there's not much <laughs> uphill. Oh, I suppose that's true. <laughs> I, I am certainly not a climber, and I'll tell you what, the, when the wind is out, I think I'd rather be going up a hill. <laughs> it, is, it, it is very humbling to be going 11 miles an hour, going as hard as you possibly can. Like, compl- like 120% of threshold yeah. going 11 miles an hour. It's the most frustrating thing. But you know what? I bet that's good training to learn how to ride in an echelon, right? <laughs> that, 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 it is. that it is. But, yeah, we talked to a bunch of people to go, in, go down and do it. And, yeah, we just got, we had a blast. And, and it Fun. Really, it was really cool because, you know, the, the, guy, that, the guy that did the, uh, that promoted the race, when when the when the registration opened up, all of a sudden, I think we were out of the first twenty people, twelve of them were up. That's great. <laughs> it's like, what the heck? What's going on? Come all these people from Minnesota. Minnesota. <laughs> I don't understand. Well, yeah, snowbirds, yeah, right? We had we had a great time. The weather was good, and uh, yeah, I mean, we'll do. Uh, we got another group going to a gravel race out in Vermont in fun. What April? Mm-hmm, yeah. In April. Coming mm-hmm. up. That's great. Are you going to that one, Sophie? Yeah. Are you? Yeah, I mean, I think gravel is 
to me, I associate like people to a marathon. Like, mm-hmm. It's a challenge. It's uh, but it's also kind of an opportunity to go. Let's go try riding in a different place I've not been. Yeah, and that's the excitement about it too. Is like, okay, it's going to be epic, but I've never been there. Why not go? It's definitely a change of scenery for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Yep. So. Fun. What uh, what what's your favorite bike right now that you're riding? My gravel bike, my Argoin Tino. Yeah. Nice. What about you, Larry? Uh, same thing. Yeah. I, I haven't ridden my road bike in a year. Wow. I haven't, I haven't ridden my road bike since I got my gravel bike. Interesting. And, but my gravel bike has now got three sets of wheels for it. Okay. So I have a road set, a gravel set, and then a mountain bike set. Interesting. So when I go on the road and, and travel, I can just bring one bike and yeah. three sets of wheels and I'm pretty much covered. That's awesome. I'm not doing much hawking anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's that's awesome. I, I I actually sold my mountain bike a couple years ago too, and I got the fat bike because I'm equally nimble on both. <laughs> yeah, you know it is. It's really funny because how the bikes have become more specialized, but in a weird way, it's kind of made it so one bike can do more things. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. So, what's a what's a bucket list ride for you? I mean, Sophie, you've had a chance to ride a lot of places in the world. What uh, what's a dream ride that you'd like to go on someday? I don't know, but we've talked about uh, the rift in Iceland. Hmm. I was like, huh, that could be something interesting. But I think that's the beauty is they're popping up everywhere. Those ride and place to go. So yeah. why not? You know, and maybe going back to Europe. Who knows? Yeah, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, I. So 20, 2021, I think we're going to try to put a group together to, to do the rift. Cool. That gravel race in Iceland. And then, like a fool, I, I let one of my athletes that I coach talk me into, uh, we're doing a four-day stage race in Baja, Mexico. In wow. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, I haven't raced in 24 years. Wow. So, yeah, I'm going to have a really painful summer. I, was, I hope you'll end up in, like, Cabo San Lucas or somewhere where you can, like, lay on the beach for a few days. No, no, Ensenada, Mexico. Wow. Four-day stage race, so that'll be... It, I, it's been... A, it, the race has been on my bucket list for, like, 15 years. Cool. And this is finally the first year where where I have time wow. to, to commit to it. Not, not fear sets in mind. That's great. So, uh, <laughs> there you go. Do you know anybody? <laughs> I do, and I, and I will. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm terrible at coaching myself. Well, yeah, it's uh, kind of like the the guy who has a lawyer, is his own lawyer, is, you know, got yeah, the. We're yeah, we're trying to tickle yourself. It just doesn't work for you. <laughs> it's been fantastic having you guys in the studio today. Thanks so much for, for being Thank here. You. Where do we Where do we send people? TheFixStudio.com. Just give us a call when South Minneapolis, Longfellow neighborhood. Just don't be shy. Just walk in the door. The espresso machine's on, huh? Exactly. Yeah, we're not scary. <laughs> All right. Well, you've been listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM, WMCN, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota, with Sophie St. Jacques and Larry Foss from The Fix Studio. We'll see you next week.